Let me pray for us. Father God, bless us this morning as we listen to your scripture. As I speak, give me wise words. Give us willing and obedient hearts that we may be spurred on to love and good deeds and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let, me, let me start with a little experiment. Okay. On the count of three, count of three, everyone yell out your favourite football team. Okay. One, two, three. Okay. We had a few less Sydney Swans supporters than we did this morning, but um, there were lots of different answers there. Um, and if you listen, we're not even agreed on what code. I think I, think I heard American football in there even, and certainly we had league and... Um, so we have lots of, different t- lots of different football teams we follow. It's not really that big a deal, is it? Except that we can get very passionate about this. So what's the saying? Football isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important. Everyone heard that before? Yep. In some places, there are even riots after football games. So these people who live in the same city or the same um, country, they form factions around their favourite team and then they fight. In today's passage, the Corinthian Christians, the members of the Corinthian church are forming factions. And they're justifying it by rallying around one apostle or another, around Paul or Apollos or Peter. What are factions? Well, factions are what happens when fights occur between people who are supposed to be on the same team. When it happens to a political party, we call it infighting. When a church does it, well, we still call it infighting. And Paul is having none of it. He says, I don't need a fan club. Or in his words, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Don't look to me, Paul says, look to Jesus. Paul, he's just a servant. He's a messenger. What about Peter? He's a servant. He's a messenger. Apollos, a servant, a messenger. For that matter, it's the same with Joe or David or John Stott, Philip Jensen or whoever you look to for leadership or instruction. Sure, follow their example and follow their teaching. But if your association with them becomes as significant as your association with Christ, well, then there's a big problem. But isn't this obviously foolish? Why would we do this? Well, let's try another little experiment. Someone call out their favourite Australian sports person, and just just to clarify, living Australian sports person. Sorry? What was that from up the back? Ash? Ash Barty. World number one tennis player. Okay, there we go. Sorry, you can see I'm not a big follower of tennis. Ash Barty. Okay, so... Imagine you're walking up the desert aisle in Woolies and coming the other way you see Ash Barty. This is exciting, right? Yep. Ash Barty here in Ingleburn and you've just met him. But let me ask her... M. I said M. Them. It's them. T-H-E-M. There you go. I, I already, I'd already worried about it. Met her. There you go. Let me ask you a hard question. Does it make you feel important to meet her? 
Would Ashbardi being here in Ingleburn somehow validate Ingleburn? Would it improve Ingleburn? Would her presence actually change Ingleburn for the better? You see, we like fame. We want to be associated with fame. But we're also dazzled by it. Another example, people see movie stars as trustworthy. So movie stars, they become spokesmen and women for various causes. But what's a movie star? A movie star is someone who is famous and paid lots of money because they can convincingly pretend to be someone that they're not. Why would you trust that person for unique political insight? They've got no particular qualification other than fame itself, but it makes us feel important to follow them. This isn't a new problem. It was the same back in Paul's day. Most of you were here for when we were looking at 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul defending his message against the claims of people he refers to as super-apostles. They're impressive. They're well-spoken. They're rich. Give me your money and you can be associated with me and God will bless you. How does Paul describe himself in contrast? He's a clay pot. Look, we love impressiveness. We love being associated with impressiveness. And I think there's a part of our thinking that goes, if I'm a fan of that impressive person, then some of their impressiveness rubs off on me. But it's the other way too. Think of a movie you love. Don't need to call out. Just think of one. Have you ever felt offended because someone criticised the movie? Have you been angry about it or felt disrespect for them? Or felt you needed to argue with them to defend your favourite movie? Why do we feel this way? Alternatively, have you ever taken pride in disliking something even though it's popular, as if that makes you a better person? Why do we feel this way? I'm just going to pick one, the Star Wars series. How much effect did anyone here have on the success of that movie? At most, you might have paid to see um, some of the movies a few times, which nets out over the world with pretty much zero effect. So why does our pride get involved when someone praises it or criticises it? If, you're not, if you don't know what Star Wars is, substitute something else that you're passionate about. It's like our football teams. Our own pride and honour gets caught up in the pride and honour of the team. Another example, have you ever found yourself saying to a friend something like, Ha! Queensland lost! You suck! That's sin talking. The same can happen with leaders and factions, such that the pride and honour of the leader or faction becomes more important than the God that we're all supposed to be serving. Have you ever felt superior because someone listens to the wrong podcast or went to the wrong Bible college? Look, heresy is a real issue. But is there actually heresy involved or are you just being snobbish? Luke records that John, one of Jesus' disciples, tried to stop a man driving out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't one of us. And what was Jesus' response? The one who is not against you is for you. As a complete contrast, consider a different John, John the Baptist. John had built a pretty big following. 
And then Jesus turns up. What does John do? Behold the Lamb of God. And two of John's disciples, they promptly leave John and head off and follow Jesus. See, John gets it. He's a team player. But not all of his disciples get it. They, they follow John. And when John points to Jesus, some of them are more concerned that Jesus is becoming more popular than John. They call themselves John's followers, but they actually haven't understood his mission. How how else might this desire for impressiveness manifest? Well, if we look at verse 22 of the passage, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs. All four gospel writers record people asking Jesus for signs. Do something impressive. Put on a show for us. Show us your power. Look, Jesus has done all sorts of signs, but the Jews want signs on their terms. If I can take an extreme modern example, there are some modern-day atheists who conclude God doesn't exist because he won't personally show them a miracle. God, I I want you to be impressive in the way I want impressive. What about the Greeks? They demand wisdom. Wisdom seeking sounds good, right? Well, here's how Luke puts it in Acts 17 to 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing about and listening to the latest ideas. Oh, okay, that doesn't sound quite so complimentary. Have you ever listened to a very charismatic speaker? Erudite, witty, has you eating out of the palm of his hand. By the end, you're willing to follow wherever he leads. But have you been won over by the truth of his speech, or are you being entertained? And because you're entertained, you're willing to believe whatever he said. Pride, honour, loyalty, fame. Friends, these are all good things, but our sinful hearts turn them to evil ends. We worship created things rather than the creator. And we exalt the servants above the one they serve. This is not acceptable to God. God is a jealous God. He will not yield his glory to lesser beings or things. On the other hand, God's people will share in his glory, but it's God's glory they're sharing in. To teach us humility, to teach us humility, God hides himself from the impressive and reveals himself to the foolish. Our society loves experts, especially experts who tell us what we want to hear. But what does Paul say to the Corinthians? It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Well, consider Proverbs. Those of you who last here last year, we did Proverbs. What's the open teaching of Proverbs? Let me get it started for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or what about the Apostle James? He starts, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him, let him proclaim it to the ignorant masses on national TV. No, 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom of God is found in humility. Indeed, it can only be found in humility. When we seek power, impressiveness, fame, a heart set on such things will not see God. Look, God can work through the powerful or impressive, but he so often subverts them so that worldly things don't steal his glory. Consider the story of Gideon. God drags this guy Gideon out of obscurity to be the head of an army. But look, Gideon doesn't start as a bold freedom fighter. His claim to fame is threshing grain in a hole in the ground so that the Midianites don't steal it. But God takes him and he forms an army around him. And so God looks at Gideon's army, about 30,000 men strong, still small in comparison to the Midianite army who's described as uncountable, but 30,000 men strong, and God says, too many. So he tells Gideon, anyone whose heart isn't in this, send them home. And a third of the army departs. So we're down to 20,000. But God looks at him again and says, still too many. So he gives Gideon another test for his men. And this time, Gideon sends all except 300 home. So we've gone from 30,000 to 300. Can anyone give me that as a percentage? One. One percent. So much for strength in numbers. But God, God says, 300, perfect. Do what I say and I will save you. And Gideon and his men follow what God says and God saves them. What about David versus Goliath? The ginormous Philistine champion. I really don't have the build to do ginormous, do I? But anyway, ginormous Philistine champion versus the boyish shepherd who isn't even strong enough to wear full armour. Look, Hollywood's probably confused us a bit on this one. We're used to seeing waifish dancing defeat hulking brutes. But hint, that's not real. Or that scene from The Princess Bride where Wesley outmanoeuvres the giant. Really? That's not going to happen. Look, David's life expectancy here is a few seconds. And it's a measure of how much Saul had given up that he even allowed this fast to happen. But what's David armed with? Why is he so confident? Is it because he has a sling and some stones? No, not really. Goliath taunts David, and here's David's response. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord and he will give all of you into our hands. David is God 
God's anointed saviour. No matter how weak David looks, and indeed how weak he actually is, there is nothing in the world that will stand against God's promises. And that's what David's trusting in. These are just two examples. Because all through the Old Testament, God sets a pattern of salvation. Salvation through God's power, not human might or wisdom. And thus, when the great anointed one comes, he is ultimately rejected. He is rejected by his people. He is handed over to the pagans. He is hung on a cross to die. And his people jeer. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. But here, they're hanging on a cross. Jesus isn't done saving them. And so Jesus dies upon that cross, rejected by the people, accursed by God, put to death as the sinless sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. They were looking for someone impressive, but God has his own better wisdom. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Or let me, let's listen to Paul talking from chapter 1, verse 21. Here's God's plan at work. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so Paul continues talking to the Corinthians as as an example. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. Much like us, really. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. And that, that, my friends, is why Paul is glad to be unimpressive. Chapter 2 begins, I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We form factions and we give our first loyalty to men because we're seeking greatness by association. Friends, 
Don't do this. All the greatness we need is found in God himself. Paul ends chapter 3 with these words. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the presence or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. You don't need to seek greatness through men. God, through Christ, has given you all the greatness you need because it's his. Let me just add another warning in passing. I've been mostly talking about humility within the church. But we face the same temptation in the world. Did you hear what Paul's saying? God's message is foolishness to the world. And yet how often do we obfuscate it or apologise for it because we don't want to appear out of step with those around us? How can you believe that? Well, you know, maybe it doesn't really say that. Or even just, well, I don't really like it, but the Bible says... Unlike any human loyalty, being loyal to God will save you. God has declared that his message is foolishness to the world. So have the humility to embrace God's foolishness. Trust in the goodness of God's word even when the world mocks it or hates it. Friends, our life is in Christ And God's power is in Christ. We're not saved through human power or influence or wealth or fancy speech or impressive acts of piety. We're saved through humbly throwing ourselves on God's mercy and accepting his free gift of salvation and resurrection in Christ Jesus. To the world, it looks like folly. But God, God will richly bless us. And if that's how you're saved... That's how you should live. Honour your leaders, but don't idolise them. Don't let your worldly pride lead you into factions and infighting. Each one of us is called to live as a servant, even as a slave of Jesus Christ. You can't do that if you're building a little emotional nest for your pride, whether it's individually or by proxy from some leader. Let me give you a challenge. Think about this. Whose work for God are you looking down on? Who's not as skilled as you or not as wise as you or they follow the wrong leader or they use the wrong technique? Which of God's people, your fellow workers, are you judging in a worldly manner? Friends, repent before God and instead of judging, pray that God would bless their work. Or maybe you're fighting with someone in the church and you need to go and put things right. Look, there is no complaint, no offence between you and them that even comes close to the complaint and the offence of you before God. But he forgave you all of it. Go do likewise. In closing, friends, embrace humility. Follow Christ. Love the brothers in the name of Christ. Amen.